0: Do you know what Nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Hellboy 2 is the movie we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, give us a synopsis of Hellboy 2. This is our
1: first 30-second synopsis. We'll see if I can bring it in even close to that. The movie opens with a young Hellboy being told the story of the Golden Army, a mechanical legion controlled by elves in the old world that has lain dormant since the truce between man and magical creatures. We watch as Prince Nuada the elf recovers the first of three pieces to the crown, which commands the Golden Army, and the BPRD shows up afterwards to clean up tooth fairies, which Nuada used in his theft. We discover that Liz is pregnant with Hellboy's baby, and the explosion following the action reveals Hellboy to the public. Prince Nwada kills his father, the king, and retrieves the second piece of the crown, while his sister, Princess Nuala escapes with the third piece. Hellboy has a new supervisor, a ghost in a containment suit named Johann Krauss and they begin the search for the troll market where the fairies came from. At the market, Abe meets Princess Nuala while Hellboy fights it out with Prince Nuada's troll muscle, Wink. As retribution, Nuada summons an earth elemental, which Hellboy kills, but the humans that witness it resent him, and he finds himself stuck between the magical world and the world of humans. Back at BPRD, Hellboy and Abe commiserate over beers about their love before Nuada appears to retrieve his sister and the scroll and map, which showing the location of the Golden Army... Nuada mortally wounds Hellboy and retrieves his sister along with the location of the army, but the third crown piece is hidden where only abe will find it abe does not reveal that he has the crown piece and he joins liz and kraus in taking hellboy to find the prince who can undo his wound in ireland liz and hellboy meet the angel of death who removes nuata's blade after telling liz hellboy will bring the destruction of the earth nuata activates the army and after learning that the golems are truly indestructible hellboy challenges nuata to a duel and when he defeats nuata he chooses to let him live nuata makes one more attempt on hellboy but nuala kills herself because they're twins so they suffer the same injuries and Hellboy then quits the BPRD to take off with Liz to have twins themselves.
0: What was that? Like a minute and a half?
1: Uh, it's about a, it
0: was like a minute and a half. It was pretty good. Pretty good synopsis. Yeah.
1: It, yeah. It's a clear movie. It's, I think, well constructed. I think mm-hmm. there are some lackluster characters, especially with the prince and princess. Uh-huh. Uh, but I thought it was a solid movie. It was good.
0: Where'd you come down yeah. on it? Well, you know, um, I can't smile without <laughs> you. I can't smile. <laughs> Sorry. You don't know the um, other words. Of this song. Oh, I know him, baby. I can't laugh and I can't sing. I'm finding it hard to do anything. Dude, One more time. You're Barry Manilow. Oh, yeah uh so yeah this movie i didn't like it as much as hellboy one i feel like hellboy one's a little bit of a better movie for me um and i think the reason for that is that things get real weird real quick with this and i think that if you watched hellboy 2 without having the context of hellboy one i think that it would be hard to get to kind of sink your teeth into it because the world is really thrown at you and the main difference here is that meyer is gone yeah, uh, they
1: wrote him out real quick. Real quick.
0: They were just like, oh, BT dubs, uh, Hellboy set up to Antarctica. Yeah,
1: Hellboy was a dick about it. It wasn't even uh, that yeah. he just got written out as Hellboy's an asshole, and that's why we don't have Myers.
0: Yeah. Uh, well... And I was really—I tried to Google and find out why he wasn't in the story. There's a couple different explanations for it. One is that the actor who played Detective Myers was doing a play in London and therefore had scheduling conflicts. But I feel like that's pretty weak because I feel like if you if you're like play in London, Hollywood feature film, uh, I think I would choose the Hollywood feature film. Hey, but who knows? You know. A stage actor, first and yes. foremost. <laughs> and then the second thing was that uh, Detective Myers is actually a character that Guillermo del Toro came up with on his own. He wasn't in the canon of the BPRD, Mike McNola's canon from the comic book. So uh there was some talk that uh because he wasn't originally in the comic books they kind of wrote him out and they tried to put him back in there but he didn't really work i don't know i kind of missed him i thought he was a really good kind of stabilizing force in the first film and he allowed us to see this strange world through his eyes so we had an advocate uh throughout the experience instead we're kind of thrown into this wild weird world and there's nobody there to hold our hand through it it's just kind of all happening And I feel like that's where the movie kind of fell a little bit short for me. Um, But once the elemental fight happened, then I was on board. So, like, I feel like the first half of the movie was a little bit clunky, but the second half of the movie, I was completely on board for the whole thing.
1: The theme that comes up with the elemental is super strong, and I just, I agree, I wish it had carried through the first half of the
0: film. Yeah, there's so many great things about that elemental scene. I think I mentioned the elemental scene when we were doing our preview cast for this uh for Guillermo del Toro I was like there's an elemental scene in Hellboy 2 that's really good and it was actually better for me this time than I that uh seeing it this time in a lot of different respects I had forgotten about it and it's such a sad
1: scene when you realize when the with the death of the elemental uh it brings home Everything before that, the discussion of, is Hellboy, he wants to be human, he craves that attention uh, from humans, and then the the elemental fight is, one, it's not a particularly fair fight. I mean, he really just kind of dodges the thing a few times and then puts several bullets into, you know, and brings the extinction of this kind of creature. and. It, it just highlights what makes his character
0: so fascinating, the, the gravity of his situation. Yeah, and just as an action set piece, too, I thought the action in that scene was really, really good. Uh, the creature design's really impressive. Um, that, that line where the evil elf appears on the rooftop and says, you know, you either command or you obey goes right to that choice that Guillermo del Toro uh, comes back to time and time again in his films. Um, and then when it dies, that how its blood just becomes grass and ferns and trees, and you can kind of sympathize with the uh, with the villain a little bit because while he comes from a land that is magical and unpredictable and uh, and dangerous and un- unwieldy, it's also kind of the the basis of life giving force on Earth that we've all kind of forgotten about in this mythos. So I thought that. There was so much in that scene that really, really, I really, really liked. It does such a good job
1: of painting. It's such a literal painting of what this city was before man. Mm-hmm. It was this beautiful, lush environment, and that's. It's a powerful concept because, and I think this is why you get a lot of doomsday preppers, a lot of people that are fascinated with the idea of the apocalypse because they want that return of mm-hmm. nature, but mm. they, and Hellboy is walking this tightrope where the the creature is the last of its kind. Certainly it's also massively destructive. And right. prior to the city, you think about, it's one of those ones that comes up when people talk about uh, food subsidies that have kind of, you know, we grow very specific things now and that's not necessarily healthy. We also have many fewer people die of starvation <laughs> because yeah. of those, those actions. And yeah. so it's a question of you know, where do you, where do you draw that line and how many people do you save and what, how do you measure one, one life against another when both mm-hmm. sides are destructive? It's, it's great. It's a fantastic theme and I really, I think when you talk about a TV show for uh-huh. Hellboy, I think that's... I mean, every episode can have that that moral quandary at some point for Hellboy, and I think you right. have a stellar, stellar show.
0: Yeah, I mean, I felt like that scene kind of helped us understand why Prince Nuwata is on his journey to uh, take over humanity. Um, just because... I mean, it goes to a core theme of why I think this is a really interesting setup for Hellboy. Because in Hellboy 1, we were dealing with Rasputin and uh, kind of ancient uh, Lovecraftian type of things, almost. Like, it 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 was a different kind of mythos. This one basically throws Lord of the Rings on top of that. Like, we have elves and orcs, and now all of a sudden we're playing Dungeons and Dragons in this universe. Which is really cool to me. But it also kind of shows why... Um, why Prince Nuada is doing what he's doing? He wants to return to—he's an immortal being, basically—and he wants to return to uh, a time that is before man. And it, it's kind of understandable, and it comes through in the production design, because you know Guillermo del Toro's production design and these old kind of elvish. Uh, you know, temples and, and and palaces and all this stuff. It's very beautiful. And then we come and we see the elven king basically in the basement of a of a warehouse, you know, <laughs> in New York City. And, and you could tell that f- through through Prince Nuwata's eyes, this is a huge uh, mistake giving power to the humans because they basically degraded everything in their path.
1: Well, and they they set up the movie so well at the start. This is the storytelling how they convey it uh, similar to the deathly hollows in Mm -hmm. Harry Potter, when they use an entirely different medium to convey a story. Um, And I was listening to some interviews today and Del Toro was talking about the reason that they use puppets to convey the story at the beginning of the movie was because the budget didn't allow for They want his original vision was a full army, you know, guys, Uh actors, the whole thing, live action, very similar to Lord of the Rings, but that's really expensive. So it was one of the first things cut, but I like the puppets because it lets you focus on the ideals of the story. And one of the first things they say is man was created with a hole in his heart, that possession nor love, uh, nothing can fill it. And so it front loads your opinions of humans, despite being human, um, that humans never really accepted when the truce was made and that magical creatures were given the forests and we were given the cities. And I think that when you see the Elven King in an abandoned warehouse, how we have encroached into their territory. yeah. Totally, repeatedly, and it's <laughs> I, and that's something that everybody, most people understand because you see, especially places like Seattle and Colorado, mm-hmm. you get, we had a, the first bear in town in Boulder just the other week, and it's because we've encroached into their territory, and right. The problem is we just trank the thing and kick it out. You know, there's no. Is that a problem
0: proper... though? I mean, that's the thing. It's it's a give and take, right? Because uh we either let the bear roam the town and basically <laughs> take over or we impose our will upon it it's the same question with the elemental do we let this thing ravage the city and you know throw its tentacles into the sides of our buildings and rip everything apart or do we exact our will over it it's a it's a it's a question of moral choice and it's a difficult one to make it's gra- it's a great
1: grey area oh this movie yeah. is this movie has great themes and it has yeah some fantastic moments. I just wish Prince Nuada, I wish we had seen him more struggling with this question. He's well, he's, he's so he, easily, I mean he's Hitler in this. He's ready, he's a he's already <laughs> settled on an opinion and his his decision is extinction of mankind. And he's so yep. set in it.
0: Yeah, but that's, you know, that's his his one-dimensional thing. It's it's the idea here same thing that we saw in Pan's Labyrinth, where you have your villains be one-dimensional, so that your protagonists can be nuanced and have more character. It's, I mean, the 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 Capitan in in Pan's Labyrinth was also a very one-dimensional villain, in that he was just kind of always the worst, <laughs> just consistently the worst and <laughs> and he had a little bit of nuance in that he had like the story of his father and he had the watch and he had his offspring and all this junk but for the most part it was just kind of this one dimensional uh, unstoppable evil force like we see in the Coen brothers movies almost you know the that unstoppable evil villain and that's basically what prince Nuada is in this movie he he is that unstoppable evil villain um and i think it allows us to be a little bit more well rounded with the other characters i'm just not sure that we got there with the, with the, uh, with our little crew there, our little Wizard of Oz crew, <laughs> the Hellboy
1: crew, they do have a, <laughs> yeah, you are correct, and th- because Hellboy doesn't know about
0: his fatherhood, mm-hmm. he, you don't see him struggle with that at all, right? Abe, well, he, he's sad. That he, we got a little hint that he's sad that the professor died, um, because that is his father. Yeah. Basically, it's his father figure,
1: but in the sense of Liz's. Liz having his baby. Because she hides it from oh,
0: him. Oh, yeah.
1: And so he is able to... It allows him to not grow up, really, the entire... Mm-hmm. When that's the whole point. That's right. that's Liz's struggle is trying to decide, can this big ape actually be a father? And, at, you know, I want to talk about Liz for a second. That's a... Mm-hmm. I realized with this movie, the first one, Liz was okay but I never really grew attached to her I realize in huh. this one she is playing the hardest role because she is the serious one when she's yeah. got Abe and Hellboy and everybody else just cracking jokes around her the entire time and she has to be the glum one that sucks that's a hard act
0: yeah it's well it's difficult I've, I actually liked her character a little bit better in the first one as well because I feel like she had a little more internal struggle i just have a hard time i'm having a hard time with the chemistry between hellboy and liz um and maybe that's why i wanted Myers back so badly because it adds a little bit of a wrench in it because i feel like Myers can understand liz because he you know now lives in this underworld where he's not going to be able to have like a normal family um so if he could find somebody who also occupies this space then maybe that's not the worst thing in the world of course she could just destroy their entire apartment in her sleep so that's a problem (laughs) But I I just wasn't getting a lot of chemistry between the two. Um, I got a little bit when, uh, you know, when Hellboy is stabbed and the spear is going toward his heart, that I think that we got a little bit more chemistry. But, um, I mean, you don't even see them kiss in this entire movie. And, frankly, the idea of them <laughs> sleeping together was a little uh, jarring for me, yeah, <laughs> to put it in my mind. It's
1: kind of the Hulk scenario. You, yeah. Your brain doesn't want to go there, but
0: it's asking the questions. Well, I mean, come on. She's pregnant, so <laughs> I, I assume it's been more than once. I'm just like, that's a, that's an interesting... Um, maybe we shouldn't think about it. Yeah, maybe that's we'll what just, I'm saying. Let's like... put that away. Let's put that away. <laughs> But I do, I want to talk about this because the movie advice is to talk about it, um, and it's really kind of funny, is kind of this Wizard of Oz uh, metaphor that, that that really applies very well to this group. Um, you know, basically, I feel like Abe Sapien is the Scarecrow, uh, Krause is the Tin Man because Prince Nuwata calls him the Tin Man, uh, Hellboy the Cowardly Lion, and Liz uh, Dorothy in a lot of ways um and and it kind of plays itself out in the movie because like abe sapien of course he's the smartest person in the group uh but he's completely he kind of loses his intelligence when his heart takes over and he or his emotions take over and he falls in love and he basically betrays the group by giving the crown to prince Nawada, the third piece of the crown um and he kind of loses his intelligence in that moment and he lets he lets his heart take over his mind in that sense uh kraus also uh is called heartless in this movie um and then but then decides that he's going to make the trek to northern ireland because of a thing in his past where his love died and now he's a ghost because of it so we want to know a little bit more about that hellboy of course you know he puts on this big uh you know this big cowardly he puts on this big courage coat and he's the courageous guy he's the first guy who's going to jump into battle at all times but he's also got um, you know he's got that temper that basically guides the courage so it's kind of uh, a faulted courage and then of course Liz you know sh- all she wants to do is find a home she- her whole life she's, uh, she's not been able to find a home to go home to uh, she's gone from orphanage to insane asylum to you know wherever and now she's finally feels like she has a home but she's not so sure about it anymore um, so I thought that Wizard of Oz thing was kind of cool that's a
1: you know, I did not pick up on that watching, but that's that's a solid is that a theory that you came up with? Did you read that somewhere? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it just kind of, well, you know, it got invited when uh when Prince Nuata says, you know, Tin Man mm-hmm. <laughs> what he calls what he calls Krause the Tin Man in the in the Golden Temple. Did you know that Tin Man is voiced by uh is it Seth, Seth MacFarlane. Seth
1: MacFarlane.
0: <laughs> yep. It's a from, weird From Family Guy fame and from <laughs> Ted Fame. He does yeah. a fantastic he does an German. amazing job. Well, it was funny because I was I was like this. Whoever did this voice is is doing a great job, um, and it turns out it's Seth, Seth MacFarlane. He did he did an awesome job, and this is kind of before he blew up. You know, he basically only had Family Guy to his credit at this point. I think. Yeah, so, well, that's good on. Know, him.
1: That's the funny thing about Guillermo del Toro. I was as I was doing some of my research. One, I tripped across Guillermo del Toro talking about like in depth about Hitchcock and Mm -hmm. referencing all sorts of directors around that. And he wrote a paper in college about it and he just went toe to toe with this guy in a deep dive about directors and Hitchcock and his methods. And then you flip to another interview and he's making jokes about a boner pill that gives you diarrhea while you have a boner and he just what? ends. He just ends like the interview, just going pff, 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 boner, pff, pff. and it's just what the guy is <laughs> such has such a range. You know, he's yeah. intellectual, but he just has these fetishes. You know, with comic books and mm-hmm. clockwork that he just and oh my god, the the monsters and the monster design in this. I agree that yeah. this world is. Feels a little heavy handed because there's so much going yeah. on, and maybe that's you know kind of like with what I was saying with the door in the first Hellboy, it was very simple. it was a stone with just mm-hmm. the two holes in the marking and that was and the rune, and that's all it takes to convey some weight in this one between the troll market and the elemental fighting in the <laughs> streets and the the tooth fairies eating everything up, and then going back and forth to the elven world it's beautiful. But it I think it feels a little bit watered down that there's not some restraint, but
0: yeah, that's the thing it's it's and there's nothing to walk us through it. There's no every man to take us on this on this journey um so i I did i I just felt like it made the beginning just a little bit clunky, I mean, and that doesn't take away from the wonder of it. I mean when they go to the troll market. It's basically it reminded me so much of the cantina scene in Star Wars. It's like, oh, now we get to enter the world and uh, you know actually see how expansive that this expansive this world is, which I thought was really great. I love the line, "I'm not a baby, I'm a tumor." <laughs> that was funny.
1: <laughs> there is so much going on in the back. Apparently, according to uh, I think it was the the commentary. I listened to the commentary on YouTube. Um, without the movie going, you can just listen to those guys talk. Apparently Hellboy walks past fried cats in the troll market. Ooh. And you know, his he he's so protective of cats, but that's how entranced he is by the notion that he fits in there, that he overlooks yeah. something that repeatedly <laughs> gets
0: him gets his heckles up. Also, obsession with cats, it also goes to the cowardly lion theme. Oh. Ah. You know, I'm surprised that I
1: haven't heard that that none of that came up in any of the the interviews. It seems such an
0: obvious reference that it feels intentional. I don't know. Maybe it was just a Magnola thing. It's like under the surface. Um, Or maybe it's just in Eric's mind. That's a possibility as well. (laughs) There's a lot floating around up there. (laughs) There is. Can we talk about
1: Wink for a second and just the beauty of that costume, of that... (laughs)
0: i thought it was funny once again a, a giant hand yeah like we had rasputin with the giant hand we have hellboy with the giant hand and we have wink with the giant Hand. and when that
1: giant comes out at the giant's causeway it starts with a hand and at that point liz was beginning
0: to suspect
1: <laughs> subs- she's like what is the theme what is with the big hands
0: yeah i don't know lots of hands but, but yeah what an amazing practical um practical suit I mean, that thing was badass. I thought that was awesome. And
1: they do such a good job of keeping the CG to mm-hmm. moments so that, yeah, like I think they were saying that the first time he fires his fist, that super cool chain fist and pulls it back. That one was the practical fist. And then the second mm-hmm. time when it comes like walking back to him, basically that was yeah. CG, but they go back and forth and it helps to
0: blur the line. Yeah, totally. It was the same type of deal that they did with the uh, Samael in Hellboy 1, but just like a better costume. I mean, bigger costume. It's like very foreboding. I thought that was cool. Yeah, he was huge. And it's the same kind of employment that they were using that Guillermo del Trio basically has used since Blade Two. The kind of mix of practical effects and CGI, and it's nice to see that kind of catch up. And I'm really excited because next week we get to jump into Pacific Rim, and I'm like, eh, there's a lot of things in this movie that reminded me a lot of Pacific Rim, specifically the elemental fight. Yeah. So I'm excited to see how those things... Although I don't think any of the monsters in Pacific Rim are practical at all. No. I think they're entirely C And
1: I'm kind of surprised that he didn't try and find it. I wonder if that was his initial intention was to try and find a way to do partial practical, kind of the old school Godzilla style. And at mm-hmm. some point he just had to abandon it because, you know, at some point his designs outpace his... Like, yeah. Because um, even the elemental was fully cg yeah fully cg yeah. Mm-hmm. um but little things like when uh nuata th- throws the i don't know what the heck it was onto the face of the auctioneer oh like yeah a little eyeball the face hugger like, yeah oh so good so i know surreal
0: the, <laughs> the eyeball i'm playing a lot of hearthstone right now and they're doing the whispers of the old gods it's like the same eyeball that's on the back <laughs> of the cards for Whispers of the Old Gods. Yeah, eyeballs are definitely creepy in this, and they're all over the place. Oh, yeah, the wings of the, the Angel of Death, that, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. actually, you know, I think that is better than Wink. I be, Just simply oh, yeah, from is. a standpoint, it's similar to the Pale Man. I think when you get into the more uh, unnatural designs, I think that's where what,
0: what yeah. Del Toro really starts to, to take off. I actually think the Angel of Death might be my favorite of his designs. Although the fawn is pretty freaking good. I think the Pale Man but... just because that thing scares the shit out of me and there's not much in movies <laughs> that does that. Well, the Pale Man's interesting because the Pale Man and I don't know what his character's name was, but like the 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 guy who presided over the um the throne room for the elf king. They were they they were very similar. Oh the like Chamberlain, the, yeah. Yeah, looked like the that looked like the pale man just deflated a little. bit. That was also, I believe, uh, what's
1: his name, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Yeah, he played yeah. the Chamberlain. He did Abe Sapien, and this was his voice this time. Um, yep, he played the he did the Chamberlain, and he also did the Angel of Death.
0: Wow, I like the one of the things I like about Guillermo del Toro's uh, monsters and the practical effects is they really like long spindly fingers. <laughs> and in a lot of creepy. cases you can tell like the edge of the fingers are rubbery and so they kind of like bounce around <laughs> and uh it's what it's like you can't really close your hand correctly when you're wearing them wearing the gloves but i love it man i yeah the character design the creature design in this i feel like is top notch and it, i feel like it was an opportunity probably post pan's Labyrinth, post. Hellboy where the studio was like okay, Caramo, just go crazy and do as many as you want. I thought it was so cool because today if you had that troll scene, the troll market scene it would like be 90% CG. You know it would be, there would be like all these little CG effects and all this stuff. I think the only thing that was CG in the troll market were the little fairies that were like fluttering around. Um, which I love that they're like these little, these little like weird, you know, fairies who, who their, their currency is information, but they can't even quite get that (laughs) right because they're two headed. Just really interesting. You know, just everything about it is an interesting backstory that you could probably make a whole movie about. Um, I thought that was really cool. One thing I will say about Guillermo del I'm not sure that he's a big fan of dogs because what makes you cuz the dogs aren't any good at security it's not that they're not good at security but they are <laughs> uh like they drink the blood of their masters there's the there's yeah. a scene after uh the prince kills the two guards afterward like we don't see him kill them but we do see him wiping his blade of the blood <laughs> he wipes his hand on it then he feeds it to the dog and the dog licks the blood off of the blade i'm like holy shit I feel like Guillermo del Toro maybe doesn't like dogs very much but loves cats. <laughs> I'd I I'd, he
1: does there are interviews where he talks about how he relates to Hellboy. Mhm. <laughs> And it's tenuous, but he he seems to believe it. So yeah, maybe he's got a thing. But why? That's the Is it the lo- the unquestioning loyalty of a dog?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe because maybe dogs are the cats are rebellious. Yeah, disobedient. Cats are free thinkers. Dogs are fascists. In his mind. <laughs> <laughs> got some other ge- I'm look- <laughs> got some other gear on the tourism's in this movie. Um, spinning blades. He loves a blade spinner. Like, a guy who can really, really move those blades around in his hands. Of course, we had Blade do that. Uh, There was the robot Nazi in Hellboy 1, and, of course, the prince here. There's a lot of blade spinning. He's a big fan of that. And the prince is played by the same guy that played uh, the villain in Blade 2. Oh, okay. Okay. So he was the he was the the vampire vampire or whatever they were called <laughs> yeah. the vampire who eats vampires. Yep, cool. That's the one. That's actually pretty cool. <laughs> um, and that makes a lot of sense. Well, the guy is very acrobatic. Yeah. So,
1: and that's um, blade spinning. Yeah, that's Guillermo del Toro again, a guy that watches Alfred Hitchcock, and he probably watches quite a bit of anime too yeah in oh definitely time I'm sure i would does. gather
0: <laughs> i'm sure he does uh another thing here uh the subway uh, the opening scene when we see the prince he's in the subway so once again we get the subway again um in in a guillermo del toro film and he kind of sneaks it in there because it's only in there for like one scene uh but you got to get the subway in there he
1: gets the creepy child because that young Hellboy
0: is super creepy well so is the tumor <laughs> <laughs> so is the. You're right. Yeah. There are no dead children in this one. And I feel like this is the first movie in a while that hasn't had dead children in it. <laughs> don't worry. We'll come back around. Was it? Did Hellboy have dead children in it?
1: Yeah. I'm trying to remember what child died. Oh, no. Hellboy. I recall it coming up. No,
0: Hellboy did because um, Liz blew up some kids when she was a That's kid. That's right. But I don't think there Blade is. 2 had any dead children. Yeah, I don't know. Off the top of my head. I, I was watching this movie and I was like. Uh, cause it came across the beginning of this movie comes across a little cartoony to me. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it's very men in black when they go into, uh, Oh, walking through yeah, PPRD. And yeah. It's Friday. Bip, bip, bip. Yeah. There's, you know, all, all of these, uh, monsters, you know, getting pinned down, down to tables and stuff. Uh, pretty cartoony. And I was like, was Hellboy one rated R? Cause there's one thing. Cause I just feel like it was a little more gritty, but it wasn't, it was rated PG-13. Um, yeah, you know, I think that
1: this one was a little bit goofier. Mm-hmm. Some of that is just Jeffrey Tambor is no longer a brooding bureaucrat. Yeah. He's a silly bureaucrat. Yep. Um, although I have to admit his hate, I hate YouTube line was expertly delivered.
0: Well, I thought like it, it lined got a up, chuckle out of me. Yeah. It lined up really well because in 2004, you know, uh, cell phones were, I don't even know if cell phones had cameras on them. I think it was like the very beginning of that. Yeah, they had like the super pixelated ones. Yeah, super pixelated. Like that was when the Sidekick came out, I think, was 2004, 2005. So that was like the, the nascent phases of the beginning of smartphones. And then by 2008... Uh, smartphones are more on the scene so talking about camera phones talking about youtube because when i'm watching hellboy one i was like yeah hellboy would not be a secret in today's world <laughs> there would be way too many people taking videos and, and pictures on their phones and uh, uploading them to social media so i thought it was nice that they touched on that in this film and i really liked how they dealt with
1: all the- do you buy that people would not like Hellboy, if they knew he was real, because we have the Kardashians and they're <laughs> monsters, and everybody seems to just be over the moon about that. Not I everybody. Feel like we,
0: we would do the same thing with Hellboy. Well, I think that anything today, anything in pop culture is going to be polarizing. I mean, that's the thing about it all is like we could all just calm down a little bit, <laughs> think about about either hating or loving our you know our heroes because uh, ultimately they're just people. And Hellboy's just a person. I think that he would be a polarizing figure. Some people would love him and some people would hate him. But that's kind of the nature of, you know, of pop culture today. He would would enter the cultural zeitgeist, though. But I do kind of want to talk about this because this is kind of a bigger theme. And it not only, you know, files into the Hellboy franchise, but it also files into specifically the X-Men franchise. The idea that, um, you know other sentient beings, you know, this happens in alien movies as well. Like do if, if we were to run into a new species that was sentient, uh, would we try to destroy it? Because we can be the only sentient race. Uh, it's a big question that gets asked in this movie. Uh, and it gets asked in a lot of other movies because, you know, I think the implication here is that Hellboy is now hated by humans and they're turning against them and therefore they're going to want to, uh, kind of clamp down on this on this um, magical universe that that lies just under their noses. Um, I I'd believe that there was a conservative element that would yeah
1: absolutely not be okay with any other sentient race. Yep, they they'd find an excuse to essentially try. And I think that uh, uh, that's what makes uh, was it District Nine? Yep, I'm trying to remember that. Yeah, name. District um, Nine. District 9 does a great job of showing what I think we would do to the next sentient if we were able to overpower them.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing about this universe is, like, I don't think that the military would be in that much of trouble against these creatures. Like you said, the elemental, you could you could take that thing down with a tank, no problem. You could drone strike the elemental and it would be done. And I was thinking the same thing with the Golden Army. I'm like, why do we have to send Hellboy to kill the Golden Army? I feel like we could just Iron Giant these things into oblivion. uh, And then they wouldn't be able to put themselves (laughs) back together. You know?
1: Yeah, but even the Iron Giant manages to put himself back together.
0: That's true, but over time. these things
1: operate under the same... Yeah. Oh, so you're saying that we just nuke them every nuke ireland every
0: couple hundred years you just nuke them or you you destroy them and then you do a a part reclamation where you uh you know put the parts in different (laughs) vaults throughout the world so that they can never reassemble themselves i don't know something along those lines (laughs) you know i wouldn't put it past human beings. i just think that humans could probably win the war and i feel like a hellboy 3 would have something to do with that like you know we we see it now with the marvel movies with civil war that's coming out like the superhero registration act and all this stuff um you know you have to register as a magical creature so that we can keep track of you as humanity i feel like we're kind of going down that road with hellboy in this movie yeah, we're great at regulating things into yeah. oblivion, <laughs> generally. <laughs> I just think it's an interesting kind of bigger bigger question that this thing asks. And that's what we see. I mean, I love that scene when Hellboy's about to kill the elemental and Krauss is screaming at him to shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. That's an order. And then you have, uh, what's the name of the prince? I can I always forget. Nuada. Yeah, Prince Nuada's it's basically like an angel and a devil on both of his shoulders. You have Kraus on one side telling him to do one thing. You have Nawada on the other side telling him, you know, you're better than this. You're bigger than this. You belong with us. You don't belong with the humans, all this stuff. And then after he does kill the elemental and you have the beautiful death of the elemental where it covers everything and, you know, life giving, you know, force and plant life and all that, Then he goes down and he's rejected by the humans. Um, so it's it's like he listened to his best intentions but ultimately it backfired on him. That I, that's why that scene is so good. It's a pivotal scene in the movie. I just kind of wish that that had come a little bit earlier because that like I said that first hour it takes a while to get to that point. Yeah, and it being the
1: the heavier question cuz the other half of the the film the other way it fills it out is with his relationship stuff and that's like you said there the chemistry just doesn't isn't quite convincing. Yeah. Um between him and Liz and Abe and Nuala, Princess Nuala. Great putting those names close
0: together. <laughs> well, I think I do think that Abe's thing I bought a little bit more because he does talk about how he's basically been a shut-in his entire life. He's a teenager in love for the first time. He's experiencing these feelings for the first time and so he becomes infatuated. Uh and maybe there's no real indication that the princess feels the same way about him. I mean, I think she kind of <laughs> likes him. But I don't think that she's like head over heels madly in love with him. Whereas I feel like he, you know, is feeling these things for the first time, and and you know his his whole worldview has changed, which I thought was really interesting to the point where he gets drunk, which uh, <laughs> is interesting.
1: So the the Barry Manilow, this is, uh, you know, we don't get as much of this with Guillermo as we did with. Both Tarantino and Edgar Wright, mm-hmm. but the the scene with him and Hellboy singing Barry Manilow. And <laughs> actually, what is he's listening to Vivaldi, and then Hellboy sees the CD
0: and well, no, he's listening into, he's listening to Barry Manilow, and then Hellboy like comes into the room and he switches it to Vivaldi oh, yeah. really quick.
1: <laughs> it, but the the notion where Hellboy's like, "You need a beer,
0: yeah, I need a beer." <laughs> Well, and that's great, too. I mean, apart from that scene and that bonding moment, because these guys, they don't have any friends, and they're they're friends with each other, even though they're very, very different. You know, they're extremely different in their approach to just about everything, whereas, you know, Hellboy's excess, Abe Sapien is, you know, uh, uh, being thrifty and conservative and, you know, uh, conserving himself. Um, you know, when Hellboy goes in guns a-blazing... Um, you know, Abe Sapien is trying to get a beat on the situation from a psychic level as opposed to a physical level. There's everything is so different. One's red, one's blue. And yet these guys are like best friends because that's all that they're all that they have in the world. And they're basically brothers because they both had the same dad in a lot of ways. So I do love that scene because it's so illustrative of their relationship. I thought that was really, it's kind of sweet actually.
1: It is. It's, it's, I'm trying to remember what it was. There's, You know, we talked about Hellboy, oh, when uh, Hellboy follows Myers and Liz in the first one, and we talked about how that kind of lulled, I think this was the same uh, kind of level. You know, we had had the big action piece, and so then we come down a little bit right before the next action piece. I do like that this scene sets up, because Myers and Liz and Hellboy following them doesn't ultimately end up... With much, um, but this scene sets up how Hellboy loses to Prince Nuada mm-hmm. because he's drunk. Yeah, totally. By the time we get there, and it's I from you know I believe uh, uh, Del Toro in a lot of his interviews. He was very he was much more concentrated in trying to show not tell. Yeah. throughout this movie, there are a lot of just subtle things that he did to kind of, to, and that was one of them was how do I set up this scene so that it's a fair fight so we buy that that uh hellboy can beat him later Exactly. And so he sets up this whole well, oh, have him drink yeah. and and it's just it's beautiful how he kind of weaves stuff together. I think I thought so too. Del Toro's a fantastic writer.
0: Yeah, he does a he does a amazing job in this movie. And you know, we talked about Blade 2, although he didn't write Blade 2. Um but you could see a progressive growth throughout Uh, what he does what he's done as a as a filmmaker and he's got such a great i think one of the things that makes him really great is that he would go see this movie if it was made by somebody else (laughs) and i feel like a lot of times especially specifically in the comic book or superhero genre i don't feel like the director would go see the movie if it were directed by somebody else i mean i'm talking about very um, you know, big directors at this point. Somebody like John Favreau, I'm not sure if he would go see the first Iron Man movie if he hadn't directed it. Um you know, uh somebody like Zack Snyder. I mean Zack Snyder's a pretty big geek, but I really don't love the way that he talks about uh geek culture in his interviews. And it seems like he and I he, he's gotten a lot of hate from Geek Culture because I think a lot of a lot of geek culture kind of sees him as pandering to them. Um in a lot of ways, but I feel like he doesn't want to go see a really interesting Superman movie. He wants to go see a a Zack Snyder Superman movie, uh, where he kind of manipulates Superman and manipulates the characters to his own will. I feel like Guillermo del Toro has a strong respect and is really clued into his audience base. He's he's really one of them, and it's something that makes him really interesting, and it's something he has in common with Edgar Wright. It's something he has in common with uh, Quentin Tarantino, is that Uh, he makes these films, but he also is part of the community that he's making the films for. I I don't know if I'm being as eloquent as I want to be about it, but, uh, but he he has that respect for the audience. So he knows what questions the audience is going to ask. So like, I'm seeing this spear in Hellboy's chest and it's creeping in toward his heart and I'm like, okay, so if you touch it, it goes, it gets near. If you go near it, it goes, it gets closer and closer to his heart. Isn't there some mystical magical force that could probably pull this thing out? And then like as soon as I ask that question, we go to the Angel of Death. And he's like, Yep, that's it. That's the mystical magical force. So he knows what questions we're asking his viewers, and then he helps he helps us answer them through the movie as opposed to leaving those hanging chads and being like, Well, that's not the movie I wanted to make. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Davey Mack in the forums calls out uh
1: Zack Snyder and David Goyer says they could uh they could learn a few things from del toro especially for the superman franchise
0: especially since goyer worked with him on help on blade 2 like goyer wrote blade 2 i'm gonna just blame goyer (laughs) well Goyer also (laughs) wrote the dark knight rises and the dark dark knight so um i mean it's interesting because you know christopher nolan did that and i don't think christopher nolan's probably a big really ingrained in geek culture i don't think he's going to comic-con uh, but he was able to make a Batman movie that was his own. Same thing, like I said, with Favreau. He was able to make an Iron Man movie that was his own. It really kicked off the MCU in a lot of ways, and I think anybody who loves the MCU owes a lot to John Favreau. But I feel like those guys, like I said, they're not gonna go to Comic Con and hang out on the sweaty show floor with all the other geeks. <laughs> you know? They're not gonna they're not gonna partake in the nerd funk with everybody. And Guillermo del Latour is gonna do that, and I feel like that's why he's got the cred. Guillermo del
1: Toro is going to bring his own nerd funk. Oh, he's going to bring it. He's got
0: his own strain, bro.
1: I love... <laughs> that's a good pun right there, if that was intentional. It was not, but thank you.
0: Uh, yeah, post-conceptually, yes, it was intentional.
1: I love seeing Comic-Con talks with, uh, with del Toro. He really is yeah. just such a fan, and that's I think that's partly why he's such a... You know, his his stuff is not this... Christopher Nolan and let me rephrase Guillermo del Toro has moments. I would say you could put that could go toe to toe with Nolan, especially Mm. Pan's labyrinth Mm. and, uh, the devil's backbone. I think that's more akin to kind of the movies that Nolan is making. Um, but he really, he just has this other side where he's cool with just making a movie about giant robots, just punching things like, and that's even for, uh, the Batman movies, Batman's always, if you look at, uh, um, Zack Snyder's Batman mm-hmm. is kind of a brutal Batman and Batman versus Superman. He's, he's much, he's very much a brawler and just punching things out. Uh-huh. Um, versus I think Christopher Nolan's Batman, who is much more of a, a tactical fighter, the way that he mm. fights Ra's al Ghul, you know, it's, not just a punching match; it's it's kind of a chess game.
0: Well, the thing I really like too about uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman is that he's he's tortured man. He's a tortured soul. I feel like it's really appropriate that they had Scarecrow as the first villain in that franchise because he brings out all of those fears and insecurities that that uh, that um, Christian Bale brings across in Nolan's Batman. Uh, whereas I haven't seen Batman v Superman, but I'm not sure if he had. I feel like. Batman is an insecure person. That's like, that's the whole reason why he does this shit is because he's ultimately insecure. He, his whole, he has this idea that was founded as a child through this experience of watching his parents murdered, that his whole world can crumble away at any moment. So that insecurity drives him to try to have control. And he does that through his means of being a billionaire and going out and doing this stuff. I, I didn't, I don't know if that was conveyed in, in Snyder's Batman. He's, I haven't seen the movie yet overly tortured oh yeah in that to the degree
1: where it's like oh my god and i on his argument in batman in that movie is if we even think there's a one percent chance that superman could destroy the earth we gotta kill him bullshit which is just such a <laughs> that's a, bullshit a, a illegit That is the prince nuata response it's like <laughs> wow wait back up you do understand that there's a he doesn't have the moral quandary with it at all
0: he doesn't yeah he doesn't lose sleep about um one percent chance are you serious yeah the 99 percent chance he could save the world (laughs) yep but that one percent there's a one percent allow it to exist there's a 99 percent chance that superman is the only person who can help us defeat the aliens that are beginning to attack the world but we we must destroy him i'm sorry (laughs) <laughs> We're not talking about Batman v Superman, man. We're talking you about You know what Hullroyd. Zack Snyder and Guillermo del Toro do have in common? Heavy rain. Oh, they love the rain. <laughs> oh,
1: bring the rain.
0: I mean, I will say if there's one thing that that consistently falls a little bit short in Guillermo del Toro's movies, I would say it's the acting. Uh I don't think he cares that much about how good act how good of actors he has. Um, which I I'm really interested to watch Crimson Peak because I haven't seen it yet, and we're gonna watch that after we watch Pacific Rim. But that one has great actors, and it's Tom Hiddleston. It has, uh, um, oh gosh, what's her name? Jessica Chastain's in it. Like it has really good actors in it. So I'm interested. I'm really interested to see what he does when he has like really top notch actors. But for the most part, I don't think he cares too much about the actors. It's much more about he's really about the story. uh, He's really about character, and he's really about that show don't tell and through that he's been able to do some really successful things maybe with some subpar actors but you know what it all comes across it all comes out in the wash i think
1: well that's it's the power of the story he make mm-hmm. because story is so front and center for Guillermo del Toro he can take people he enjoys working with yeah and they don't have to be a a Christian Bale cuz Christian Bale's probably a nightmare to work with but you're going to get his performance out of, you know, his level of performance. Mm-hmm. Ron Perlman's probably fun to work with. Yeah. And he just likes being a bruiser. Yeah. And I think some of his mentality is probably similar to Hellboy. That's why he, <laughs> he, he fits the role so well. But when he's required to kind of stretch that inner struggle, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily come as cross as strong. And that's okay because the story is doing most of the heavy lifting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's not a bad actor. No, he's not at all. And he's kind of born to play the role in a lot of ways, I think. Um, but you're right. I think story comes to the forefront. <laughs> production design comes to the forefront. Uh, and character comes to the forefront. And if you have those things in place, you can make a successful movie, even if your actors aren't you know, all going to win Oscars um, for their... For their work in this movie or any other movie for that matter. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, so we have Hellboy 1, we have Hellboy 2. There's a lot of talk of Hellboy 3 coming up. Um, Ron Perlman wants to do it, but he might be a little old. Uh, Apparently it's been announced, um, but I'm not really sure if... What that means means, Guillermo del Toro. (laughs) Yeah, take that with a massive grain of salt when you're talking about Guillermo del Toro. Hellboy 3 in development, apparently. Um, But if you were to make Hellboy 3, what what do you think it should do? Do you think it should be a sequel to Hellboy 2 or do you think it should be something else?
1: I think it is. And from what I've gleaned from the interviews thus far with all the Hellboy movies is the third one is about this destiny. This is the Mm -hmm. idea that he is the destroyer of worlds. Yeah. And I don't. Is the comic book series still going? Yes, it is.
0: But it kind of hops around a little bit, I think.
1: Based on for, – for Guillermo del Toro's conclusion to Hellboy, my preference would be to see – it would be Hellboy versus own destiny because he mm-hmm. hasn't had to compete with it. People have alluded to it. Technically uh, he competed uh, Ras- with it at the end of Hellboy 1. You know, Rasputin tried to get him to, but yeah. even that he was – he resisted. Um, I want to see him come to that moment where – the, you know, he feels defeated. He feels mm-hmm. forced into this, uh, to this moment where he's supposed to destroy the earth. And yeah. I want to see how he flips feels with that, that on it. Similar to how he, uh, brings Liz back. I want to see him basically stare whatever apocalypse in the face and tell it to <laughs> get out of his house. Because he is, uh, that's, I know in this movie he struggles with, is he human or is he a magical creature? He's human. He was raised human. Mm -hmm. He is absorbed in human culture. Yep. And he has that, um, he has that struggle within him, but at the end of the day that he's 99% human. The only thing that makes him inhuman is
0: his, his strength and his, his, the color of his skin. He's very much like Superman in that regard. I mean, Superman is just a kid from Kansas who happens to also be an alien superhero. Yeah, he just doesn't have the luxury of looking human. Um, Yeah, I I think it would come to a head. So first of all, we have to figure out how whole boy is going to make money because he doesn't have the (laughs) uh, doesn't have the power of the federal government behind him now. So he'd have to make money somehow. And I think he'd do it through maybe public appearances or something along those lines, because, I mean, Ape Sapien needs a fish tank. Hellboy needs 2,000 pancakes a day, uh, unlimited beer supply. Oh, maybe he becomes a spokesperson for Budweiser. That would actually nope. be kind Tecate of funny. Like, is what yeah. he would be the spokesman. It was Bud Light in the first movie, heavy. I thought. And oh, then it was, was Tecate this I don't this remember. One.
1: <laughs> this one, the Tecate presence was happy. Sure.
0: That's great. Yeah. So he, he, maybe he moves to Mexico, and he's Takate's spokesman. What if he's the new Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes, so that's how he does it. He does it through endorsement deals, which makes sense. So so that means that he he has a mansion, right? He can have the Hellboy Mansion. <laughs> and Abe Sapien, he could do something intellectual, so he could, like I don't know, found a university or something. Um, and so they have this ranch, this cat ranch mansion <laughs> that cat they're living ranch. on. But then the humans and the government turn against Hellboy because he turned against them. And it's the same this type of deal. They want him to register as a magical creature. There's magical creatures now popping up all over the world because BPRD, B, BPRD can't t- handle them anymore. So now all of a sudden, we just have all these magical creatures popping up. So they're going to put a clamp down on magical creatures. They're going to begin uh you know interning them and so forth and then hellboy has to make the choice whether he retaliates and ends the world or uh ultimately saves humanity because you know uh, apocalypse is coming or the four maybe the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming it's basically the new x it's exactly the new x-men movie actually i would love to
1: see guillermo del Toro's take on the four horsemen of the apocalypse
0: yeah it would actually be really that would be awesome (laughs) <laughs> um so that's of course one story but like i said that's that movie is coming out it's called x-men uh age of apocalypse or rise of apocalypse or whatever x-men apocalypse it's just know. apocalypse
1: i don't think it, it doesn't look commercials don't make it look great
0: really i'm excited for that movie dude really yeah i've loved the x-men prequels i've loved all three of them. i didn't actually first class is probably my least favorite but uh of the 3 but I still really liked First Class but I loved Days of Future Past. I thought that was awesome. I don't know. They they go
1: so you know they're trying to shove so many characters in that I think they typically lose the story and there are moments that are great but it just cohesively it doesn't hold they never feel like they hold together for me. So I always kind of struggle with them. I'll if,
0: I'll go see it because I go see a
1: movie a week practically but <laughs>
0: Yeah, but it's, it's basically that movie. That's I think that that's also Hellboy 3 is X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, it's kind of, of where all
1: the movies are going right now. Yeah. It's, but this is, gotta...
0: this is the other angle that I'd like. Because now we've seen that Hellboy aged normally for at least the first few years of his life. When he's about 10 years old in 1955... Uh, He looks like a ten-year-old. He acts like a ten-year-old. I would love to see a 1970s Hellboy movie. That's like a 70s. It's BPRD 1970s buddy cop like Starsky (laughs) and Hutch type movie. Uh, where they have to go kill monsters in the 70s. That that would would be be my jam. And it would be like either like Bigfoot would be in it for sure. Uh. Like, it'd be great, yeah. It'd be great to like journey into rural Canada or something. Maybe uh, the Jersey Devil. Jersey Devil punches, punches him out. Yeah, or maybe he teams up with the Jersey Devil, <laughs> or, or Mothman or something. Yeah, like it, something that explores kind of American folk mythology. Uh, Batboy. They've got to come across Batboy. Got to cover Boy come ba- Well, Batboy was in Men in Black. I don't want to over. I don't want to cross these over too much. He was. Yeah, he was. Well, it was you know in the tabloids oh uh, no. yeah yeah so but yes i think something that explores american folk mythology set in the 1970s with hellboy and maybe Abe sapien but probably not maybe maybe like you said maybe he introduced jersey devil or something into it i, I like something along those lines <laughs> i also love the idea that he's made money through beer endorsements though because <laughs> he has to get his unlimited supply of beer it's part of his deal maybe the government
1: comes after him Similar to uh, Wesley Snipes, they get him for <laughs> tax
0: evasion. It's yeah, it's all it's all. Uh, well, that's the thing is that he only gets paid in in beer and <laughs> pay, he he's also a spokesperson for IHOP. He gets paid in pancakes. Uh, <laughs> this is perfect, dude. This is great. Um, maybe he moves to Cuba so he can smoke Cuban cigars nonstop. Yeah, maybe. that was poor uh
1: leadership quality that's why this movie needed Myers because yeah. there was no even johan was not a good you need that foil right. for uh hellboy keeping him in line and mm-hmm. there just wasn't the fact that jeffrey tambor gives him the treat before he yeah. goes on the mission that's poor parenting you give the treat <laughs> after they do what you ask yeah.
0: you can't give the bait first because it just doesn't work i agree um Yeah, Myers. Because Myers also he was he was more like, come on, man. Like you know, he he almost uh, helped control Hellboy through peer pressure because, in many ways, he was the type of person that Hellboy would like to be. I think deep down, but he just can't overcome his own childish tendencies to make it to that point so he could he could do that and kind of talk to him as more of a peer as opposed to an authority figure and i think that's why it it helped keep him keep him in line i mean i feel like if they do do hellboy 3 and they are going to do this thing where you know the government is going out and trying to uh to take over or register hellboy or whatever um i think bringing back myers for that would be interesting to play kind of both sides in that equation that could be that could be interesting back from antarctica
1: this all just gets me, I want to read the comics. I really want yeah. to see where they take the, where Mignola takes the character because it's, it's, it would be cool to contrast where mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro sees him going versus what Mignola is doing because it is, it's a great setup for a character. And yeah. And that's, well, it's that's just... why del Toro does so well with it because he, that environment is as much his specialty,
0: mm-hmm. that world building yeah, and and that's the whole thing about it. It's just a really, really interesting world. Um, so right now there are twelve to, th- uh, or there are thirteen trade paperbacks out right now for Hellboy. So there's plenty of you to, there's plenty for you to take in. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'm starting with the first one. I actually haven't started reading because I'm reading this other book right now, but I will dive in very soon because I do love this world and I want to delve deeper into it um so uh i think that's all we have for this one do you have anything else levi yeah
1: you know i'm looking through my notes here i think we there's so much you can always talk about it's hard to like the 30 second synopsis uh it's hard to fit it fit it all in the time but you know that's what makes it such a good movie to go back to and that's what makes Guillermo del toro's work so much fun to go back to
0: absolutely um i yeah the the more the thing about the the, the del toro's movies is that they're all thinkers and the more you think about them the more interesting they become they unravel themselves like an elemental touching water um (laughs) yeah so uh so listener please go to the forum because next week we're going to be watching Pacific rim, 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 rim. I'm so excited
1: about this movie, dude. I can't remember what the guitar riff is, but I think that's what makes that movie. Dude. Every time the robot is, like, ready to fight and it just kicks in with this little rock riff in the background and it's just creatures punching each other but something yeah. about that riff just
0: gets me like yeah let's punch something i am so excited for pacific Rib, dude i'm really really excited to to watch this movie again so uh join us on the forum talk about it forums you can also send us an email direct podcast at gmail.com and uh, we'll read it on the cast uh just want to throw out a quick personal note here davy mack please email me at directpodcast at gmail.com because I'm going to Japan in June and I want to hang out with you. <laughs> All right. So next week we got Pacific Rim. Until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.